Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 56, Taisho Days. The end of World War I had changed the world, and even though Japan was spared the carnage, it left its mark there too. The economy was running red hot, rising prices due to global shortages of goods was wearing on the populace, and party politics had become a solid part of normal governing. Many of the nation's commentators earlier in the 1910s had predicted a shift in the balance of political power away from the oligarchs and more towards mass politics, which would necessitate a liberalization of society. As we covered last episode, the trends certainly seemed to point in that direction, but it was in the last couple of years of the decade they accelerated and social pressure started to become irresistible. A breaking point was reached in late July 1918. I discussed last week how the price of foodstuffs, specifically rice, were increasing past the point of affordability for many. Those prices did not go unnoticed by speculators either, and they started hoarding rice in the expectation that they could make ever larger windfalls later on. This, in turn, did not go unnoticed by normal people, who were both being denied food and watching as prices of what rice was available uh, climbing due to the added artificial shortage. Understandably, they were very upset, and a wave of riots started across the country as people desperately started fighting simply to be fed. Buildings were burned and looted, and there were around 25,000 arrests made once the police stepped in. It served as a wake-up call to the political establishment that maybe they weren't as in control of the nation as they might have liked. The sitting prime minister at the time was Taruchi Masataki, the old general who you might recall was in charge of cracking down on Korean resistance in the aftermath of Ito Hirobumi's assassination. He had secured the premiership two years previously and had navigated a politically neutral course between the liberal Sayukai party and their establishment rivals comprising Yamagata's faction. He was actually tied to Yamagata, but as premier, attempted to act independently. By the time of the rice riots, though, his health was failing and Yamagata had come to his own understanding with his opponents. Taruchi was compelled to resign, and Hara Takashi of the Sayukai party was installed at the end of September 1918. He was even supported by Yamagata and his people, which might sound odd given that they were still rivals, but Hara's conservative stance on social reforms might have had a lot to do with that. While the riots were eventually put down, there were increasing calls from virtually every corner of the nation outside the elites to expand voting rights something that Hara himself demurred on, as the Sayukai had already secured the support of most of the upper and middle classes that did get to vote. Expanding the vote would have jeopardized his hold on the House of Representatives, which was pretty much securely his at the time. This earned him little love for most of the population, and his moderation and disinterest in military adventurism made him an enemy of the ultra-nationalist right. Plus, he was a party politician and a commoner to boot, which marked him as something of an outsider to a lot of the elites. His time in office was going to be a little rocky as a result. The biggest concern to face him and Japan in general was going to be the end of the war boom. Having all the other big countries pour all their money and attention into unproductive slaughter had been a fantastic business opportunity for Japan, but it was never going to last forever. The Europeans switched back to civilian economies, and while, as we are well aware, they themselves faced huge economic hurdles, they did fitfully get back into the business of, well, business. War contracts ended, demand for civilian goods lessened as European producers got back to it, and competition returned to the markets that the Japanese had slid into 
while the combatants were away. It's not like a switch was flipped and everything went back to 1914, but the easy money was no longer there. Then there was the spiraling cost of goods. The Hara government tried to grapple with the mounting inflation by restricting the money supply in the country. Less money being available meant that prices would stabilize or go down. Problem with that, though, was it made Japanese goods more expensive and businesses less competitive abroad. Many Japanese businessmen, though, continued to speculate on new ventures, not realizing that there weren't really profitable ones out there. Demand was down across the board, and expanding your firm in that environment just wasn't a good idea. But they did it anyway. The result was a really dumb market bubble, and in 1920 the stock market crashed, which is of course your normal indicator that a recession was underway. It's important to note that the recession and resulting financial panic didn't hit everybody the same way. It was mostly the small and mid-sized companies that were hit hardest as they had smaller pools of resources to fall back on. For example, those big Zaibatsu groups that I introduced back in episode 53 weren't terribly affected. Their positions had not depended on speculation and had not needed to expand very much relative to their size during the war years. The collapse of these smaller companies even gave them the opportunity to pick over the remnants uh, for what ventures were still profitable. So the 20s in Japan were kicked off by the already huge conglomerates just getting bigger and more influential. That isn't to say that the smaller enterprises went away or even became unimportant. In fact, 60% of Japan's produced goods were still made in businesses with less than 100 employees during the 20s. So they were still the bulk of the industrial economy. The thing was, though, that the conditions that made them vulnerable during the 1920 crash, uh, namely a lack of a firm financial footing and a lack of flexibility in the face of shifts in demand, remained ever-present. They might have represented the bulk of Japan's industry, but they were terribly unstable. Bankruptcies, closures, and sudden waves of layoffs were common all through the decade, which meant that for the workers of these enterprises, their employment was rarely secure. Fluctuating employment meant working-class families were always living on a knife's edge, and the unhygienic slums of the major cities continued to be inhabited by the almost itinerant workers. Their home lives were reflected in the workplace, as for both male and female workers, conditions were typically filthy and backbreaking. The circumstances that these people lived in were not a secret to the rest of the public, but instead of sympathizing, the more well-to-do turned their noses at the growing proletariat and regarded their rootless existence as a sign of degeneracy. They thought the workers coarse and untrustworthy, characteristics that they believed were what delivered such workers into their lives of poverty in the first place. In turn, the workers themselves felt degraded by their employment and lamented that they were treated no better than animals. Usually this would be where I'd talk about unions pressing for workplace reform and a little more job security. But union activity had taken a hit for almost the past two decades. Not to say that workers didn't form associations and coordinate with each other, but large-scale unions had a very significant hurdle to overcome. Remember from last episode the public peace police law, which was designed to crack down on the socialists? Well, it also cracked down on union activity, too. This is where Hara coming into a position of leadership was important, as he relaxed enforcement of the law in 1919 to allow increased union activity. He didn't repeal it or even change the law, just he relaxed the enforcement of it on the condition that the unions and their activities would remain strictly peaceful. 
but it had an immediate effect, and unions started cropping up all over the country. And the recession conditions only made the need of such organizations all the more urgent. Work stoppages and strikes exploded from 1917 onwards, and the 20s became a decade of striking activity. The most notable example in the early part of the decade was in mid-1921, when 30,000 workers went on strike at the Kawasaki and Mitsubishi shipyards. By and large, the strikes or threats of walkouts were successful, with over half of such actions delivering the desired result or the majority of concessions from the employer. The successes came from the strong discipline of those unions and that their leadership were selected democratically, which is notable because it gave the workers practical experience in a type of politics before they were even allowed to vote in normal elections. For many, unions became the place where they were able to elect officials to speak for them regarding their livelihoods. Remember, it was the upper and middle classes that sent guys to the House of Representatives, so the common workers weren't very, well, um, uh, well, they weren't represented there. For the employers, the strikes presented a vexation that they would strike back against later in the decade, and especially after the Great Depression. Most of the industrialists were not towering figures who could shrug off a labor dispute as small potatoes. Keep in mind that the majority of them operated small firms, and a work stoppage could ruin them, especially after the 1920 crash. Regardless of the size of the business in question, though, virtually all the employers saw the rising number of strikes as a threat to their authority. Many of these businessmen had either built themselves up or had been associated with the very earliest generation of entrepreneurs and considered their operations as their personal domains. They were annoyed with Hara relaxing the laws restricting unions, which is important for later as their desire to reassert themselves over labor leads to them going along with increasingly authoritarian rule. But in the meantime, they sought an accommodation favorable to themselves. So, they started preemptively offering better pay and working conditions before strikes broke out. In an immediate sense, this was very good, as it improved the lives of the employees. But the employers didn't do it out of the goodness of their hearts, but rather a strategy of paternalism. They provided benefits unilaterally, so that if there were any complaints later, they could be brushed off as ungrateful. They were not concessions, they were gifts and privileges handed out by the master of the factory to his subjects. No law or contract had been made to enforce those benefits, they deferred from place to place, and were subject to change at a later date. The lot of the urban worker in the early part of the 20s was a story of the struggle for dignity, and while successes were achieved, they were fragile ones, dependent on the liberal climate of the day continuing into the future. And I would be remiss without mentioning a newly emerging group of the time period, one that would help enrich the Japanese nation for little material reward to themselves, and a whole lot of misery in the bargain. I'm talking about Koreans who migrated to Japan for work. The annexation of their country had brought them formally into the empire as subjects of the throne, ergo they were able to make the move with no legal obstacles. At least, they could make the move. However, they were very much treated as a conquered people and enjoyed much fewer rights as the Japanese in practice. Still, the dire conditions of the Korean villages meant many young men took the chance. It didn't work out great for them. Mostly due to discrimination, but also due to language and education constraints, they got stuck with the manual labor jobs in the mines, in construction, or the most basic tasks in a factory. These were the bad jobs that paid terribly for the Japanese, and even less for the Koreans. I mentioned that the well-to-do among Japanese didn't think highly of their blue-collar fellows, 
and they were even more negative of the Korean migrants, whose community rose tenfold over the 20s from 30,000 to 300,000. They were most concentrated in Osaka, where they made up a full tenth of the population there. Due to the discrimination and lack of pay, they wound up in their own concentrated ghettos within the cities. There, the Korean communities fell into kind of uh, two schools of thought. Those who wanted to resist their mistreatment started forming political and labor groups to challenge the status quo, although they were pretty much just held in contempt by the Japanese themselves, and their numbers were way too few and scattered to make an impression. Another segment favored collaborating and trying to integrate into Japanese society, and even formed a social group to advance the cause of Japanese-Korean friendship, hoping that by proving their use to the Japanese, that they would be accepted. It didn't work, but it was the sentiment that was popular as many Koreans at this early stage just wanted to live a prosperous, normal life. Too bad for them, the Japanese saw them as parasites who undercut native workers by taking jobs at lower wages. Basically, your standard anti-immigrant stuff. While it would still be a little later before Japan started systematically marshalling Koreans for their labor, this is where that community in the home islands really got started. The situation for labor wasn't much better out in the countryside either. For those who actually owned land and controlled the sale of the rice harvests, the years of high prices had actually been pretty good. Last week I talked about the have-nots who didn't benefit so much, but there were those who did reap rewards for a time. That ended after 1918, when the Hara government implemented measures to bring in more rice from Korea and Taiwan, as well as implemented deflationary policies to bring the prices down to affordable levels. That, coupled with a general depression in agricultural prices as the rest of the world returned to normal and other areas started exporting food again, meant that even those who had benefited in wartime saw their prosperity crumble away. And for those already in a lurch, their lot just got worse. By 1917, only 31% of Japanese farmers actually owned all the land they farmed on. The rest were either tenants who worked the land and provided half their harvest to a landlord, or those who owned some land and rented more. The relationship between these tenants and the landholders became increasingly tense, and the tenants started organizing. The prior decades had seen a big shift in the culture of the working farmers of the country. Conscription into the army meant young men were sent all over Japan and its empire, and they derived a lot more self-confidence and social awareness from the experience, especially if they had fought in the wars on the mainland against China and Russia. Plus, increased education meant that they were exposed to ideology and were given the language to express their discontent that prior generations had lacked. Finally, many had taken jobs in the cities and come back, and from their urban experiences had learned not to be automatically deferential to their supposed betters. They had been exposed to a world outside their home villages and expected a better lifestyle than just backbreaking servitude. Meanwhile, Landlords, in many cases, no longer even lived on or near the estates they rented out, instead pocketing the money and living a more glamorous life in the cities. As a result of all that, the tenants began creating unions to press their grievances against the landlords. Previously, the legislation restricting unions applied to the countryside just as much as the cities. So it was after Hara relaxed the law's enforcement, this movement went from being a first rule of tenant unions is don't talk about tenant unions kind of thing, to being out in the open and formally organized. Still, they had to be cagey in how they pressed their cases, and they had to be careful not to be seen as disruptive to the state. Those groups became highly organized. 
They managed treasuries, kept detailed membership roles, and kept statistical data on the harvests in the regions they operated in. That last part is especially important, as a union's knowledge of how the local harvest was doing would help form any cases they presented to the landlords during a dispute. The most effective tactic of these groups was to present themselves as the most reasonable voice in the room and apply slow, consistent pressure, but never enough to provoke the authorities into cracking down on them. That meant disputes were more akin to contract negotiations, and strikes were relatively calm affairs. And there were a lot of them, with almost 25,000 being recorded between 1917 and 1931 out in the countryside. And they didn't just press for lower rents or better conditions, either. They also campaigned for expanded voting rights with the prefecture governments and their national representatives. Key to their cases being heard, honestly, was the presence among union leadership of many of those combat veterans I mentioned a moment ago, men who had been proven heroes and could not be dismissed lightly. Going into the 20s, countryside was to be roiled by conflict between the organizing tenant farmers and the established elites. The tensions at home were reflected too in tensions abroad, as Japan came into its own as a world power. Before World War I, Japan had kept mostly to East Asia and did not involve itself in the affairs of Europe. The cataclysm of the war changed that, though, and made the politics of Europe global as the victorious Entente attempted to apply their principles of peace across the entire globe. The desire for a universal settlement meant that Japan would have to be included in the proceedings, something not all the Western powers were thrilled about. Remember way back in Episode 3, I talked about the Oceanic Commonwealth members and the United States being suspicious of Japanese expansion, as well as being overtly racist towards Japanese nationals immigrating to their shores. The feelings were reciprocated in Japan, as there were public outcries over immigrant Japanese being treated as second-class citizens at best. As the United States and Australia threw up immigration restrictions based on race, the Japanese people felt themselves isolated from those who had been ostensibly partners during the war years. The feeling was only enhanced during the Paris Peace Conference when the Japanese delegation attempted to insert language establishing equal rights between the world's races, something that the other powers, dominated by whites, could not abide. The overt and very public rejection confirmed many of the worst fears of a very proud people. I've established many ways in which Japan westernized, for good or ill, and how their society changed as a result. It's important to note, though, that it was not by any means a complete transformation. The population retained their beliefs and customs even as they adopted new modes of living and consumption. And the more they were disrespected by the West, the more the popular imagination started turning back towards Japan as a specifically Asian nation, apart from the great powers that they had learned from in the past 50 years. There was, in short, a growing sense of Pan-Asianism. The idea that the nations of Asia had to rise up together to build a community capable of resisting the collective Western powers that had oppressed them all to one degree or another. Among those who subscribed to this school of thought, the most natural partner was China, which, as we'll cover in the upcoming Chinese miniseries, was currently in the throes of a warlord struggle and also in political chaos. Not exactly the most promising of partners, but China was still the largest and wealthiest country in East Asia due to its sheer size. And having a massive but crazily fragmented neighbor might not be such a bad combination. The Japanese were able to exercise influence over those Chinese warlords on a case-by-case basis, pushing their agenda on the mainland in ways that would have been impossible had their neighbor been properly united. 
The main focus was in building relationships with the Manchurian warlords, that region already being within Japanese sphere of influence, but it extended in areas like Shandong and Shanghai. It even went beyond the regional warlords and included the national government in Beijing as well. Duan Cherui, for example, leader of the powerful Anhui clique and sometimes leader of China, was deep in the pockets of the Japanese and made many of his cabinet and bureaucratic appointments at their direction. And that brings us to the problem of Pan-Asianism for Japan, something that they were never going to be able to get over. They were a tyrannical bunch who might have learned a little too much from the West. Their vision of Pan-Asianism always had the caveat that Japan would be in the leading role of any larger community. After all, they reasoned, the Japanese had been the ones to modernize, it was they who had warded off the Europeans from their own shores, and even beaten the Russians empire to empire. They put in the work, and it wasn't like anyone else was going to pick up the mantle. And that was fair enough. Other Asian people recognized that and looked to Japan for inspiration, and many, especially among the Chinese, went there to study and build networks of support for liberating their homelands. But these Asian guests did not envision themselves as cogs in a machine dominated by a single nation, but potentially equal partners when the time came that their home countries could stand on their own. And that's where the conflict was going to come into play. There were liberal factions in Japan that were anti-imperialist and vocal about it, and would have preferred independent partners. But they were largely in the minority and most of Japan's leadership wanted at least a predominant leadership role in the region. And among the ultra-nationalists, they wanted a full-scale empire. This disconnect meant that no coherent policy could be agreed upon pretty much all through the 20s, and there were confused efforts in both directions by different factions. But what really signaled the death knell, though, for peacefully creating a pan-Asian community was the rise of the Kuomintang, or the KMT in southern China. They were a group that were explicitly nationalist in their outlook, and saw Japan as just another interloper, and definitely the most actively destructive. All the attacks and slights by Japan that we've covered in past episodes were not forgotten in China. The KMT deliberately used them in their propaganda efforts to rile up the population and get them on their side. In doing so, they also closed the door on a partnership with the Japanese. As when the Chinese masses flocked to the KMT side, they did so with the expectation that there would be an eventual reckoning with their neighbor. And Japanese activities, not just in mainland China, but in Korea and Formosa also, served as a warning to other Asian peoples of what might be in store for them should the Japanese replace the West as the master of East Asia. And despite the Pan-Asian sentiment, Hara's government and its successors charted a deliberately conciliatory course with regards to the West. Keep in mind, the early 20s were seen as a time of deep Western supremacy. While they might have been increasingly unpleasant to deal with due to their discriminatory domestic laws, not engaging with them at all was out of the question. The UK and French empires were at their fullest extent. The United States had demonstrated that they could build a navy so gigantic that the Pacific could never be secure if they were an enemy. Also, during these years, the combined Entente, Japan included, were engaged in a haphazard military action in the Russian Far East. I say haphazard because everybody had different objectives, and we'll be covering that entire affair in detail for the next few weeks. But for now, just be aware that it exposed fissures between the Americans and Japanese, with both nations' militaries almost coming to blows in the area. Up to this point, the Americans had not been active players in the East, but now they increasingly sought to contain the Japanese, whom they perceived as a threat. 
Plus, with the Treaty of Alliance with the UK expiring and it not being guaranteed it would be renewed, Japan needed to make accommodations and quick. I discussed last week Japan deliberately liberalizing itself to bring its politics more in line with the West. The other item in the early 20s that helped the major powers come to an understanding was the Washington Naval Conference in 1921-22. I've mentioned the conference before in other episodes, but the most important details for Japan was that they would maintain a fleet 60% the size of the American or British navies. That might not sound great on paper, and believe me, the nationalists were not terribly pleased with it, but the Japanese could concentrate their fleet in one theater of war, the Americans and British couldn't. And third biggest navy in the world during an age of empires wasn't anything to sneer at. The big boon for many of the Japanese leadership that subscribed to an internationalist perspective was that the treaty precluded a naval arms race that Japan could not possibly compete in, especially with a recession sinking in. Local superiority could be maintained without wrecking the economy. Okay, I covered a lot of ground in just a brief time considering all these events only happened from about 1918 to 1921. If there's anything to take away from this time frame is the lack of consensus in Japan. Modernization had been successful, and the economy was industrializing. But at the same time, Japan became more vulnerable to changes in the global market, having both benefited and suffered. The rewards of these successes were still not distributed equally, and the establishment sidestepped any comprehensive reforms. Indeed, one of the things that was going to cause trouble down the road was the middle course taken by the leadership in the 20s. In declining to go the populist route and appeal to the masses, the government failed to garner wide popular support. And without that popular support, the legitimacy of the government was undermined among many Japanese. There was also dissatisfaction with the increased power of the Zaibatsu, and how politicians courted them for funding and influence. Which wasn't to say even they were happy. In declining to enforce the privileges of the elites, and especially in the case of Hara allowing unions to openly operate, the Zaibatsu and non-elected leaders grew frustrated with the direction the country was going in. And then the ultra-nationalists in the military and those who supported them were angered by a lack of an aggressive foreign policy during this time. The former German possessions of Qingdao and the Shandong province in China were vacated, the navy was restricted in size, and the liberals blocked more aggressive interference in China. This seriously ticked the military off, as it was perceived as civilian interference in what was strictly the military's turf. Japan was rapidly becoming a knot of competing interests that were mutually exclusive with each other, and dangerously the military grew to become disenchanted with the liberal direction of domestic politics. The passing of the Genro removed from the board the very individuals that could command the respect needed to contain them, and with the masses becoming engaged and demanding a greater voice, those who had benefited from the original, non-democratic setup of the state started to feel under siege. As these pressures continued further into the 20s, those feelings would only increase, and spearheaded by the military, there would be a pushback against the Taisho democracy. But that's for later. There's still plenty of internal conflict for Japan in the meantime. We'll be picking back up with Japan's social and political history for the rest of the 20s in a few weeks because next time, we're going to take a little sojourn onto mainland Asia. I talked very briefly about the Japanese intervention into the Russian Far East, and next episode, I'm going to expand on that a lot more. It's an adventure that doesn't get talked about a lot, but is important, because it again puts Japan and Russia on a collision course, and even introduces some conflicts between Japan and America. And the big thing for this mini-series within a mini-series 
is that it's going to give a nice, in-depth look into how Japanese politics worked in the period. Because just as important as the military aspect of the intervention was, the political dimension might have been more so. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.